Chicago. It's Startup Hype Man, the podcast. What's up, everyone? My name is Raj Nation, founder and chief pitch artist at Startup Hype Man, where we help startups not suck at how they pitch themselves. How? By making sure their audience sees them not as the best, but as the only. And this podcast is the only show where you will hear from leaders in the startup ecosystem sharing a piece of their heart, their mind, and their story on how they are charting their own path, growing their companies, and choosing not to play the game, but to change the game. Before we get going, hit the subscribe button on your podcast app so you never miss an episode. Also, head over to StartupHypeMan.com and subscribe to our Point of View letter, where we share original articles, insights, and resources all to help you become the only of your industry. All right, get your popcorn ready and get hyped. It's showtime. Ladies and gentlemen, making her way to the microphone from Boston, Massachusetts, and currently residing in Durham, North Carolina. She is the co-founder and COO of Ballot Ready. Please welcome Aviva Rossman. Hi. <laughs> Lefty speaking. Huh? <laughs> yeah, I don't know how to react to that. That's never happened to me before. <laughs> <laughs> First time for everything. Like I said, she is Aviva Rossman with Ballot Ready. What is Ballot Ready? Well, it is quite simply a software platform that enables civic engagement at every level, powered by the most comprehensive database to every level of government. Ballot Ready makes it easy for voters and constituents to take part in our democracy. And one of the ways they've been able to successfully do that is actually through um, B2B partnerships where, where corporations are helping their 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 customers, their user base become more informed and more active participants in democracy. Over just a couple years, they've amassed 300 plus customers with names like Spotify, Snapchat, TikTok, Levi's, and more, helping them reach in the 2020 presidential election alone in the 2020 primaries, um, reach 30, sorry, 2020 primaries and generals, reach over 35 million people, helping them become more active, more engaged, and participants, true participants in our democracy. They've raised $5 million along the journey. They've done a lot in a short amount of time. And as they have grown their team, one thing they've been very mindful of is the culture that they build at this company. And our topic today is around leadership, specifically Building culture through conscious leadership. Aviva, once again, welcome to the show. Why is this on your mind? Why is this important to you? Yeah, thank you. Uh, first of all, very excited to be here. Um, <laughs> it was a great intro. <laughs> so I was thinking about this quote from Ben Horowitz about how in startups, you only ever feel, feel uh, euphoria or terror, and then the lack of sleep enhances them both. Um, I think that's really true. And so I've really found conscious leadership to be something that helps you navigate through all those emotions, through the roller coaster of startup life. And especially now as we're navigating a lot of uncertainty in the market, um, people might be feeling resource constrained, people might be feeling fear or sadness. Uh, for me, conscious leadership has really been an invaluable tool for navigating decisions and relationships and emotions in startup life. 
Now, before we're going to dive a whole lot more into that topic, before we do, let's learn a little bit more about Aviva, the person. So Aviva, talk to me about like, when do you recall being civically engaged yourself for the first time ever in your life? Were you like running for school president? Were you trying to, in third grade, were you trying to tell people to recycle? What do you recall in your own life? So the first memory I have of voting in an election was uh, in pre-K. We had a mock election and my parents told me, you know, it was um, Bill Clinton and Ross Perot and the first George Bush. And my parents told me, oh, well, this is who we like. This is who you should go vote for. And I was very adamant uh, in our pre-K that my parents' candidate should win. Um, (laughs) But I actually grew up with a lot of civic engagement because my dad works in healthcare policy and worked in the state house in Boston. And I remember in middle school, we drove up to New Hampshire I took the day off from school the day before the election. This was 2000. And we knocked on all these doors for Al Gore. Um, and Al Gore actually lost New Hampshire. If he'd won New Hampshire, he would have won the presidency. He wouldn't have needed Florida. So I felt personally responsible. Like we hadn't knocked enough doors. And then in 2004, my dad pulled me out again, this time for two weeks. I missed two weeks of school. We flew down to Florida on our frequent flyer miles. It's part of what they called Operation Bubby. So the idea was turn out the Jewish grandmother vote in Florida. <laughs> Again, not a success. I did not have a good track record. And I came back. I was almost failing two classes. I had to make all this stuff up, uh, but was totally hooked on politics. So <laughs> grew up with it. Uh, it's been a part of my life and it's something I'm really passionate about. On that note, I think a lot of people kind of choose to opt out or resign um, from politics in general. They will say, Oh, none of it really matters at the end of the day. It doesn't apply to me. Or they'll say, ah, like, you know, it's all a two party. I mean, I can say a lot about the down, <laughs> the downside of a two party system, but a lot of people choose to just not engage altogether because of that. Um, what's your perspective on that? What's your response when you hear someone say, like, ah, it's not worth even being involved? I mean, it makes sense. There's a lot in our democracy that isn't working. Um, and that's one of the things that I care deeply about. But I can totally get it because you get all these emails that are like, contact your senator, tell him to do this. And you do that and nothing changes because a lot of times you're from a state where your senator agrees with you. And it really only comes down to the senator from West Virginia who's going to make a difference at the federal level. I think the biggest learning I've had since starting Ballot Ready is that the real opportunity for change is at the local level. And that's not something we hear a lot about on the news. It's not something that people know a lot about. Um, So it makes a lot of sense to me that people are disengaged and frustrated. But the local level, they aren't necessarily parties. They're the people who feel a certain way about masks or about police or about recycling, about bike lanes. Um, and that's something where five people show up in a meeting and it can really make a difference. So mm. that's that's our mission is how do we get people more engaged at the local level where there's such a huge opportunity for people to make real change. Now, with that understanding, can you talk through how the idea for Ballot Ready came together? And not, I mean, I, I'm getting a sense of your desire to help people get more involved, especially at the local level, but like why a software platform? How did you, how do you come up with this idea to be like, Oh, we should actually go to businesses and and have them access their, you know, user base. So we didn't figure out the business model for a while. Um, <laughs> the original idea came about because I had been a teacher in Chicago um, and I was leaving the classroom. I was going to grad school. I wanted to stay involved. I ended up running for local school council which if people in Chicago don't know, every single school in Chicago has an elected body that can hire and fire the principal, approve the school budget. This local school council, it was right at Division and Damon, if you know it, in Wicker Park. 
The yeah. aldermen said they would defer to the local school council about whether there should be a Trader Joe's across the street because the school didn't want the traffic. Um, and the aldermen said, it's up to you. And uh, they decided they didn't want it. So if you wanted a Trader Joe's in Wicker Park, that's part of the reason it doesn't exist right there. <laughs> um, it would have been but, nice. At one point, I lived like across the street from Division and Damon. Right? <laughs> so my friend lived around there, my friend Alex, who I knew from college. And so I called her up. I was running for local school council. And I said, hey, will you come vote for me? She said, yeah. She was also passionate about this Trader Joe's. Um, but uh, she said, I didn't even know this office existed, which I think is true of a lot of people in Chicago. Um, I ended up winning with 116 total votes, which I think just tells you how local this office was. <laughs> um, also, Alex did not show up to vote for me. Uh, she was busy that day. So it's really good that I still won because uh, we kept in touch. And she was going through a coding boot camp at the time. And had this idea to get ready for her ballot for the um, upcoming election, knowing that'd be long. If, if you're in Chicago, there are just 100 judges that mm -hmm. most people just have no idea who to vote for. So she was working on that. And she called me up because she knew I'd run for this very local office. And so that's how it got started. It was just this basic idea of most people don't know who to vote for when it comes to all these local elected officials. How do we make it much easier? Mm. Okay. So you guys, you guys get together. You start talking about building this platform out. And then can you talk through, and we'll get into our, our, our conscious leadership discussion in a second, but can you talk through just first when you had that decision to be like, hey, like we can figure out a business model around this that involves corporations? So again, like that was not our original business model. We thought there'd be something interesting around um, aggregate data and maybe polling. And that was actually what we originally raised our pre-seed round on. Uh, and so we went through the... First of all, we were, I was in grad school at University of Chicago. So we started off by winning the Booth Social New Venture Challenge. We were working with the Institute of Politics there. They give us our first $400, which, you know, at the time felt like this huge, um, huge amount of money, huge show of faith. Um, right. 400 or 400,000? No, for, for, 400, 400. Oh, wow. <laughs> this is the very beginning. <laughs> no, we won 30,000 in the Booth Social New Venture Challenge, which again, at the time, we were like, all right, well, we're set. We can just ride this out. Um, yep. uh, but we went through the 2016 election. We were in 12 states. We reached a million people. We had all this aggregate data that we then went to figure out how to monetize. And it just, no one actually wanted to buy it. We had completely misjudged whether there's mm. value in this. But we had worked with a bunch of partners and they were like, hey, we really like what you're doing, but we want to build a version of this that's focused on what we care about. We care about the environment. Can we do an environmental voter guide? And at the time we had said, no, no, no. The important thing about startups is focus. We're focused on this business model. We're not going to get distracted. Uh, and they said, but really we want to, we would pay you to do this. You know, will you take our money? And at that point, that was a pretty good sign that actually this was a real business model if someone was willing to pay us for it. Um, mm. And so then another customer came to us and said, hey, not only do we want to know who's on the ballot about certain issues, we also want to help people uh, make a plan to vote and turn out to vote. Uh, and so another group came and said, hey, we want to help recruit candidates. And it turned out the connecting thread between all this is that the data, all this information on uh, the local candidates on your ballot, where your polling places are, how do you run for office, uh, it's all stored across 3,200 plus uh, local boards of election. A lot of them don't have websites. You know, you have to send a fax. One time we got a CD-ROM and we had to find someone whose computer still had a CD-ROM drive. Wow. <laughs> So figuring out how to collect all that data, we were able to build it into a platform that helped people take action based on all this information about mm. um, their local democracy. All right. So 
a lot of this building and developing, you know, over time you grow a team around this. And once you start building a team, you go from just like, you know, kind of founder creator to leader in the process, right? So, you know, our topic today is building culture through conscious leadership or building culture with conscious leadership. Can you first let us know what is conscious leadership and how did you learn about this leadership style in the first place? So conscious leadership is a way of thinking about your decisions um, and essentially being intentional about your life. So if you are thinking about all these things are happening to me, for example, I never can sign this deal. No VCs will talk to me. Nothing is working. Conscious leaderships help you shift from that mindset into a mindset where you feel in control. You're not a victim anymore. You can take responsibility. And I was first introduced to it pretty early on uh, through our first accelerator that we went through, uh, Merge Lane. And we're talking about this. One of the central concepts in conscious leadership is this idea of above the line or below the line. And when you're below the line, you feel resource constrained, you're committed to being right, you're not creative. And then if you can shift to above the line, then that's where you can be open to the world, you're open to learning, all these things. Um, and I realized as we're going through this exercise about what are you below the line about, I was below the line about a lot of things in the startup at that moment. Hmm. And I also realized we went through this other exercise uh, called uh, withholds, that I had a lot of withholds from Alex, my co-founder. All these things that we just hadn't been saying, you know. Oh, withholding of, from each other. Yeah. Okay. All these things that it, the thing about a withhold is it just builds on itself. And so that every time someone does something, it just builds on the story of it's just like them. They're always late, you know, or it's just like, it's like, it's like a rubber band ball where you keep adding one more rubber band onto it. Exactly. And it had gotten pretty big at that point because we didn't have the tools to talk about it. And so after the day of sessions, we went to a bar and we basically just talked for three hours and we, got out all these things about what was actually working in the company, what was not working, what was working in our relationship, what was not working. Um, and I think the thing I learned that day, because I was very skeptical of all this stuff, it sounded kind of wishy-washy, you know, kind of <laughs> hippy-dippy. I was like, oh, conscious leadership, like what a name. <laughs> I don't know about this. <laughs> but after this three hours of talking, um, you know, being that candid and direct with someone and talking about you said this, and this is how I felt. I felt sad. And this is the story I made up when you didn't respond to my email or when you gave this, you countermanded you know, my order or something like that. It creates a lot of vulnerability. And so it enabled us to not only just solve problems in the business, it brought us closer as partners. Um, and it built a lot of trust because we knew each other. She, uh, Alex was my orientation aide at UChicago when I was oh. a freshman. She took me to my first party, you know, with <laughs> Some shared background, a lot of shared friends. But we, when you're founding a business together, you know you're with each other all the time. It's kind of like a marriage in some sense, yeah. and it, it actually takes a lot of work uh, and a lot of openness and trust to be able to work together like that. Can you take us back into that conversation at the bar where you start airing it out? Essentially, like, is this no holds barred? Like, go say everything on your mind for thirty minutes straight. I'll listen, and then we'll switch. What was the nature of that conversation? And were there any like specific things you can recall that either you heard or you said um, that needed to be discussed? What I really found valuable is that conscious leadership gives a framework for how to do this because it's hard. Okay. And it's also easy to get defensive when someone's giving you feedback, you know, 
if someone says you're always late, you're like, well, I'm not always late. And you're, you were late this one time. And also you forget that I had this circumstance. So what conscious leadership says is focus on inarguable facts. So what would a video camera capture? So in that example, I could say, we had a meeting this day and you came five minutes late. Then you talk about how it made you feel, which is again, an inarguable fact because no one can argue with your feelings. So you could say, I felt angry. And then you talk about the story that's connected to it. And that's where it really matters because you know you came late, so what? But if I make up a story that you came late because you don't respect my time or because you're disorganized, that's something to really talk about. Because if I then have this belief about you, this story that you are disorganized, that's bigger than just you came late. And that's why it actually matters because it means things for our company. So those are the things we talked about is number one, we had to figure out who did what. And you know we were all kind of doing different things, but there were things I was good at, things she was good at, and things we both weren't good at. So to say, well... I have a story or you didn't get these three things done on time. That made me feel really angry. And I have a story that now we're just, we're never going to, you're never going to get things done on time and I can't trust you to get things done on time. So it's one, what is the inarguable fact? Two, how do I feel about that inarguable fact? And three, what's the story I have created around that fact and the feeling that's been generated? Right. And then the, what the partner does the whole time is the first time they repeat it back. So they say, okay, so you, I was late. Um, it made you angry and you made up a story that I don't care about your time. And then they say, is there anything else? Which is a great prompt because then you stop and think and you're like, oh yeah, also I'm really mad about this. <laughs> and you keep going and they repeat it back. Um, and then they thank you for sharing and then you can talk about what you know what you're feeling. So mm-hmm. it gave a really good model because again, and 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 Alex and I have done this now many times. And part of it, sometimes one of us will say, "I feel really defensive right now. Hmm. I feel sad that you feel this way." And it gives you a chance for them to process their emotions too. Um, being so being candid is hard, and I think giving a framework for people who don't want to do it, or for people who want to do it but their emotions involved in it. Uh, it works. It was a really useful way to go about it. Um, in that model, the partner repeats it back. And then they ask, is there anything else? Let's say you have more to say. Let's say you don't have anything more to say. How is the partner then? Like, how should they be responding after that? Because theoretically, you could hear all those things and be like, well, you're wrong for these reasons. <laughs> yeah. I mean, in so the way we did it, and again, all these things are just models and you don't have to stick to it is one person just goes through everything first and your job really as a partner is just to listen. The other thing about these things is you can't just do it. I can't just say, Hey, I want to do a clearing with you. Listen to me vent at you for the next 30 minutes. Mm -hmm. You have to be in a place where you want to hear it too, because you're just going to be sitting there listening to me. And ideally you're in a place where you are really just taking it in and thinking about it. And when I first learned this, we saw one of our investors, Sue, do this. And it was just amazing to watch her because she was just closing her eyes and kind of smiling and just like nodding her head as she heard this person attack her for being too detail-oriented and yelling at someone <laughs> about not getting the right sandwiches. Um, and that was just an amazing model because I think I also had in my head that when you receive feedback, it's scary. Um And, you know, it's something that you're going to dread and to watch someone kind of smile and like really relish it. Like, Ooh, yeah. Like really 
tell me what you're thinking. This is great. This is really helpful. Um, that was just something I never experienced before. Hmm. Okay. So where does the person, I guess like, when is it their turn to respond? Should they take in all the information, sit on it for a day, and then you come back to the conversation? Should it happen in the same session? And is there a model for how they should give their reply? I can't remember off the top of my head if there's a model. And I think there's no hard and fast rule here. I think the thing is, is the person in a place where they can respond, where they are open to the feedback? And mm. there were times you might say, listen, I feel really below the line about this feedback. This was this concept from earlier that we learned about. Like, I don't, I feel really committed to being right. I don't feel open right now. Mm. Let me take a day and come back and see if I can shift and be in a place where I can respond to this. Um, but that's the point, right? Is that you are taking the feedback as a gift. Um, but another concept that's been useful to me around this sort of feedback is that you have a windshield wiper. So it's not like someone can come to me and say, you suck. I felt angry. You did all these things. My story is that you're a terrible boss. And you're just like, oh, thank you. Yes, I am a terrible boss. Like <laughs> You can have a windshield wiper or a windshield filter and you take sure. some things in. You're like, this is really valuable. I can learn from this. And you can also take things in and say, actually, I disagree. I don't think that's a, you know, I understand that's your story. I can't disagree with your inarguable fact, but my understanding of this is different. And this is what I can learn from it. And this is what I can't. I want to talk about how you have been able to scale this leadership style across the company. Before we go there, uh, on that note of scale, I want to take a step back for a moment and talk to our listeners about how they are scaling their own individual products. Maybe you've got an app and your app is launched. Awesome. Congrats. The journey is just getting started. As you think about scaling up your software, did you know that about four and five apps get abandoned after a single use? Why? Because they don't really deliver what the users want. So how do you improve your app to avoid failure? Well, fear not. You just need an experienced partner that's going to help you out with this quest. And that partner goes by the name of Mikito. They're a team of design, software development, and product strategy experts that have built over 150 successful products for startups and enterprises. And what that means is they've got the experience and the know-how at the enterprise level to see to know not only how do they build, but how do they build for scale and support and all those things. But because they work at the startup level as well, they've got the speed, the agility, and the flexibility for a fast-paced environment that a startup offers. Yours could be the, the yours could be next in a long line of successful software apps and products. And how do you find out if yours could be next? Well, just have a conversation with Mikito by going to Mikito.com slash hype man. That's M-I-Q-U-I-D-O.com slash hype man. Mikito.com slash hype man. Today on Startup Hype Man, the podcast, we're with Aviva Rossman, co-founder and COO of Ballot Ready. And we're talking about building culture with conscious leadership. Now, Aviva, before the break, I mentioned I wanted to know about how you scale this philosophy and this leadership style across the team. Because everything you've said so far has been about your relationship with your co-founder, which is very much a peer-to-peer -peer relationship. Now, how does this work in a you know, leader subordinate situation, because I can see how if two people have like equal status, if you will, or on equal ground, this can work really well. Where I, 
want to learn more is, well, what happens if one person is in a position of power and the other person reports to them? How does that work? Yeah, that's a great question. And we, we spent a whole year talking about feedback and it, it's still difficult. I mm. think part of the things we encourage managers to do is to ask for feedback directly, because if you don't ask, it's just much harder to give. Um, but I, I agree. It, it's still difficult to get people in the position where they're willing to give it. Um, one way we've used this in our company, one of our core values comes from conscious leadership, which is this idea of 100% responsibility. So the idea is sort of like, let's say you want to carry a table. If you take less than 100% responsibility, let's say you take 50% responsibility, you kind of just sit on the sidelines. You're like, all right, let me go get, let me delegate. You know, let me, someone else can carry this. I'm not going to help. Maybe you just sit there. You don't even delegate. <laughs> You're just mm-hmm. like, someone else is going to move this table. A lot of times what I see at our company is people take more than 100% responsibility, which is I'm going to pick up this entire table and I'm going to just move it myself, which you know, can be difficult, sometimes impossible. You might throw out your back. Uh, so 100% responsibility is you're taking the right amount and maybe you find someone and you carry it together. And that's something we talk about with managers because as you're talking, let's say to a, someone, a direct report who's underperforming, you want to think about what's your 100% responsibility here? What's your responsibility? What part is their responsibility? In what ways maybe you're trying to save them, you're trying to prevent some conflict, you're trying to prevent some hurt to them from getting bad feedback or from failing. In that way, you're taking more than 100% responsibility. Maybe you're acting like a hero, which for them sort of turns them into a victim. Hmm. Um, how do you find the right way where you are providing them the support they need, but they are also doing what they need to do? to meet their goals. Okay. So if I'm an employee and I'm having an issue with my manager, is the culture at your company such where I could follow the three-step framework of being like, hey, here's the inarguable fact about the situation. Here's how I feel about it. And here's the story I'm telling myself because of these things. Right. Ideally, you could do that. Also, it's hard. (laughs) So sometimes... (laughs) Sometimes people practice. Sometimes people write it out. Um, sometimes people can't do it. But yes, the goal is to be candid. And also, I think the other part of 100% responsibility is if something's not working with your manager and that's affecting your performance or if it's affecting the company, what's your 100% responsibility there? And mm. if you don't tell them, you know, you're not taking full responsibility because it's not going to change and you're making a commitment to, I'm committed to this thing staying the same. Right. Um, So you have to find a way to tell them. And then let's say you do tell them they don't change. Well, then to some extent, you've done your 100% responsibility. Now it's on them to figure out what to do next. Then in that scenario, I guess, what kind of systems or um, philosophies do you have in place to help there actually be follow through? Because like you said, right, someone could say, could do the right thing in bringing up an issue. Another person theoretically could be like, all right, you don't know what you're talking about and just right. keep doing the exact same thing. <laughs> yeah. If people completely disagree, it's hard. You could maybe bring someone else in. You could think about what's my responsibility. If I really strongly believe we're doing the wrong thing, mm-hmm. bring in um, someone above them. Um, or you could say, I've done my best and I can't convince them we're going to disagree. That might also be true. I think another tool we found useful from conscious leadership is this idea of clean agreements. A lot of times difficulties stem from this idea that we are making really vague agreements. You end a meeting and you say, okay, that's great. Uh, this person is going to follow up on that. 
but what are they exactly going to do? When are they going to do it? And then, you know, two weeks, it doesn't get done. You say, Hey, you said you were going to follow up on this. Well, there wasn't a clean agreement. What was I actually going to do and by when? So we've done a lot of work in the company thinking about how do we clean up our agreements and make sure that things are really clear. And we use Asana in our Asana task management system. Um, But also in meetings and things like that in Slack, people will say, do we have a clean agreement? And that's a great way to make sure that we're all on the same page. We're all aligned. This person is going to do this at this time. Um, The other great thing about clean agreements is they're mutual and they're negotiable. Sometimes if you're a leader, you have to give an order. That's not an agreement. You just tell someone they have to do something. But if it is a clean agreement, both parties agree. And that means that if they don't do it, you can go back and say, hey, we had a clean agreement. What happened? Versus if they don't do it, uh, the problem is more around the agreement. So this idea of clean agreements, I think I I haven't heard that phrase before. And what it reminds me of in in the idea of not being vague and the follow-up example you gave is... So back in, I think, middle school, we were trained in school in um, like emergency response and first aid and, and uh, CPR. And, you know, you have the little like the CPR mannequin there. The right dummy, yeah. yeah. <laughs> um, and what they always said was, and it's funny because so many years later, I don't have the certification renewed anymore, but I still remember this. It, so if there's an emergency, I can, I'm not qualified to give anyone CPR. I just want to throw that out there. Um, <laughs> They would always say, like, you know, you, you know, you shake the mannequin and, or the person, it's like, are you okay? Are you okay? And then it was like, they're like, point to someone, you, you call 911. Right. Instead of saying, somebody call 911. Cause then no one knows, like, everyone just assumes someone else is going to do it versus specifically assigning someone the specific task or, or even worse, saying, somebody call for help. Now you haven't yeah, even right. said, like, what help is, right? Or, or who to call for help. So they always said, you know, point to someone, assign them the task or the responsibility. Like, you call 911. You, you know, go get ice from the store right here, right? Whatever the things might be. So that way, you know, the person who's in need does not literally die on the fact that everyone has a vague understanding of what they should be doing. I remember that too. That is stuck in my head from my CPR <laughs> training, right? You call 911 and there's like that big finger pointing. Yeah. <laughs> you, yeah it's, a, it's a very, because we don't, pointing fingers is not something that happens very often. <laughs> like literal pointing of fingers doesn't happen too often in communication, but uh, that one's always stuck with me. And I feel like this is almost like an, uh, a derivative or an installation of that within your culture. Totally. I, I think everyone's experienced that feeling on Slack where you're just like, hey, can someone fix this? And the someone, there's just silence because who's someone? And everyone, <laughs> there's a, some hot potato or everyone else is busy um, versus clarity of like, hey, this certain person, can you fix this? And also, again, that doesn't even have the when. Is it urgent? Do they have to do it now? Uh, could they do it in three days? Could they do it in a week? Is this something that just needs to be on the roadmap? Mm-hmm. Um, having that sort of clarity, I think, helps with communication a lot, um, especially when you're working remotely. Now, are there any sort of like, well, let me come back to, so that's the, you know, you talk about leaving, leaving the clean agreement, leaving with the clean agreement. And I think part of what may help in having a clean agreement is a clean upfront. And I want to come back to the step one of the process, which is the inarguable fact. And, and I'm wondering if in instances where you know, potentially things end up vague or a person doesn't, you know, really hear what the other person is saying or disagrees with it. Is it ever like, well, let's look at the inarguable fact. Was it truly inarguable or did you, did you start by presenting an arguable fact? 
that's, I think, the hardest part about doing this process because everyone, it's all mixed up in our heads, the story and mm-hmm. the inarguable fact. But if you can really focus, and I've done this a ton of times because people have written these out in Google Docs and I just go through and I cross out, cross out, cross out. Um, because it really needs to be just what would the video camera capture? Mm. And obviously, I think a lot of conflict in startups when you're under a high pressure environment stems from we are coming up with all these stories about why people did things. And it seems like an inarguable fact, but you just don't know. And that's the thing you have to remember a lot of times when you're navigating disagreements or um, challenges. I think what, what's helped me personally, I don't know, I guess, navigate life, I suppose. (laughs) Um, And that's funny. I was just very recently, I was having a conversation with uh, my wife and one of our friends uh, is this idea that like literally there is a universal truth that does exist. However, I don't think any human is actually capable uh, unless we get to a very enlightened state of genuinely knowing and understanding what that universal truth is. Um, And so what we're left with is perception and everyone is just living through the through the through their own perception of something and and I mean that you know you can go as deep as you want with that but I think it even like literally I think the most tangible way to look at that is like you and I could both be standing on a street corner looking across the street at a tree but I'm standing 2 inches to the right of you so I'm going to naturally see that tree slight in in a certain way and you being 2 inches to the left we'll see that tree in a slightly different way. And so all we have is our own perception of the situation of the of what's in front of us and a situation that's in front of us. And what we're trying to do ultimately is find some type of alignment between the two perceptions because neither of us can really grasp what the ultimate truth is. Yeah, I think that's so true. I mean, not to get deeply philosophical here, but no, please. I mean, this, this is the show is for. <laughs> I, I mean, we're all black boxes to each other. I, you seem like a person to me with your own thoughts, but I can't access them. And maybe you're a robot, maybe you're a zombie. <laughs> I, I don't know that. Um, but I think it's easy to forget a lot of times about that lack of access. I, there was an interesting piece of feedback I got from someone once where I had posted an announcement. Um, about uh, the birth of the, they were expecting a baby, mm-hmm. exciting thing. And I just quoted their Slack and I said, you know, this is their words. And I didn't realize when I said that, this really hurt that person who thought that I'd said that because I disapproved of the way they were announcing their baby. Um, oh, interesting. And so something that, you know, was meant to be super exciting and celebratory. It's actually something that caused this person pain. And, you know, I had, no idea. And obviously that was never my intention. Um, but it's such a good example of number one, I have no idea what you're thinking, how someone is reacting. I can have tons of stories of you're mad at me, you're angry at me, um, but I can't know. And number two, if you don't share that feedback. That person's carrying that around. That's informing their relationship. Again, this is like a withhold of that rubber band that's building. And when you're candid about it, then you can talk about it. And I can just say, no, oh, no, that's not what I meant. And I'm sorry that 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 you felt sad when I said that that wasn't my intention. Um, mm. I do think it's good for marriages. I, my husband is sometimes, I, I mean, he's I'm like, taking notes for personal use <laughs> for sure. <laughs> he's like, are you conscious leadershiping me? Like he knows what I'm doing. It. Like, it's a little, 
Sometimes it's too much. Uh. <laughs> well, okay. So actually, I, that is that does bring up another question I have, which is um, sometimes like a pitfall when utilizing a model like this, you know, any type of communication model, when everyone like knows like that's the model, it's like okay, you're CLing me, or you know, you're, you're conscious leadershiping me. I get it, right? So. Does that happen at your company? And if so, like, is it okay that that happens? Or is there a way to be like, I know, but it, it is important for these reasons. <laughs> so how, how, do you, how do you make sure it doesn't like become disregarded because people know it's a communication model? So not everyone agrees. Not everyone finds this model useful about already. And so it's not a thing that we say you have to follow this. I think the model for feedback is useful. Um, it's something that I turn to when people come to me for advice or I'm coaching people, but it's not something that's mandated um, mm. on high. And I think that's the other thing. It's just a model. It's not meant to say you have to do these things. You, know, you have to talk in inarguable truths and say things in this order. Really, what's been valuable for about conscious leadership for me and building the company is just being aware um, of what you are doing and why you're choosing to do it. And then you can make a decision. Um, I'll give you one example. Let's say a customer calls up and they're just giving us super annoying feedback and they're upset about everything and they want us to change things. And sometimes my reaction to that is angry or afraid. Um, and I'm like, God, you know, I don't, can you curse on this podcast? Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Like fuck that customer, right? Like <laughs> I'm not giving them anything. I don't want their money. I hope they fail. Like <laughs> I don't want to work with them anymore. Um, and then I think a pitfall of, of people learning this model is they think, okay, the point of conscious leadership is you're going to become this conscious guru and you're going to transcend that. And you're going to say, what can I learn from this super annoying customer? But actually the point is just to notice that that's how you're feeling. And then you can make a choice and you can say, okay, do I want to shift? Do I want to try and learn from this? Or is it really fun to just be like, let's vent about this fucking person mm-hmm. and their stupid ideas and their bad requests. And you can just exist in that way. Um, and get a lot of pleasure from it in something that's difficult. The point is that you're making the choice versus if you're not conscious of it, then that could be driving your decisions. You could be really, (laughs) yeah, it's it's literally unconscious and you could be super afraid. And so you're just, you can't focus or you're telling the engineers, Hey, we need to change the roadmap right now. And you're yelling at people because they're not doing their jobs. And it's all become because you are feeling this emotion, this fear, this anger, um, but you haven't really processed it. You haven't made a choice about how you're going to react to it. Um, so it's in the driver's seat as opposed to you uh, working with intention. One more question here before we, we turn to our final wrap up. Um, what do you feel would be the, where do you think the company would be today had you never learned of conscious leadership and adopted it? I mean, going back to that conversation between me and Alex, I don't know if we could have continued to working together, right? All these things would have built up. So I don't know how much of a company we'd have. Um, I don't know. We're, I think we're a very open company. I think people trust each other. I think people are, communicate well. I think transitioning to remote um, post in COVID would have been really difficult. Um, I, and I also think I would just be less happy. I'd probably be much more stressed about mm. life as a startup founder. Yeah, you would not be ballot ready <laughs> for what was to come. <laughs> Cheap puns brought to you by Roger. <laughs> All right, let's go. Let's turn over to our final wrap up now. First off, um, where can our listeners find you? Where can they learn more about ballot ready? Um, so definitely, if you are a voter, you can go to ballotready.org. You can see your entire ballot. You can make a plan to vote. 
uh, you can see your elected officials. That's something new we've added recently. And then if you are a brand or a nonprofit or an advocacy group who wants to add civic engagement to your company or to your work, you can also reach out to us at ballotready.org or to me, Aviva at ballotready.org. Awesome. Aviva, who is one person you only get to pick one and it's not the only time in life you'll get to do a shout out. So please just pick one. Who's one person who you want to give a shout out to who's been helpful on your journey? Uh, I want to shout out Sue Heilbrenner, who's our investor that I mentioned, who led this accelerator. She's the one who taught me all this. She knows uh, so much about this. Her website is heysu.com. So if you're interested in conscious leadership, I definitely recommend checking it out. We'll now give our top one or two lessons or takeaways for the audience based on our discussion today. I'll go first and I'll toss it over to you. The topic today was building culture through conscious leadership. Uh, We've talked about a lot of good things today. I think um, for me, the two things... Now, I'll just focus on one thing. Um, I like that idea of the withholds. So ask yourself, what are you withholding from another person that might be getting in the way of your relationship with them. Aviva, top lessons or takeaways on building culture through conscious leadership. I would say to your point, not everyone has to agree with this. Not everyone has to believe in it. It's been a useful framework for me, but I think, think about how you're making decisions, how you're processing emotions. What are the stories you're telling yourself? And then you can decide how to process them, what frameworks to use. Um, but as a startup founder, there are lots of emotions. What are you doing with them? My final question now, which is how we end every episode on this show. Aviva, fill in the blank. Entrepreneurship is blank. That's a great question. I would say uh, entrepreneurship is um, something new every day. And why do you say that? That's what I love about being an entrepreneur is any day I'm learning something about finance or leadership or being on a podcast. Uh, It never gets old and I'm always learning something different. Entrepreneurship is learning something new every day. She is Aviva Rossman, co-founder and COO of Ballot Ready. Aviva, thank you so much for joining us today on Startup Hype Man, the podcast. Yeah. Thank you for having me. And listeners, remember, I've been talking about it all season long. But coming soon in 2022, we are officially dropping the Startup Mixtape, a full hip-hop album dedicated to the founder's journey. It'll be available on all streaming platforms. If you want to know when the drop is happening, when we're dropping singles along the way and, and be there for the journey to get there, just subscribe to our point of view letter at StartupHypeMan.com. You'll be the first to know about everything related to Startup Hype Man. Well, startup the, the startup mixtape i should say official name of the mixtape pending and if you've got ideas shoot me an email let me know i'm trying to figure out what we should call this album all right everybody peace out we'll catch you next week that's a wrap on this one shout out to our guest once again for sharing their story with us if what you heard impacted you do one of three things one let our guests know reach out to them directly they love hearing from you Two, leave a rating and review on Apple. Or three, simply hit the share button and share this episode with one friend who you think would benefit from hearing it. Catch our full episode archive at startuphypeman.com slash podcast. And if you want to make your pitch not suck, reach out to us through the website. That's all for this week. We'll catch you next time. Raj Nation out. Believe the hype.